You're listening to the micro version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Well, this is awkward. I'm recording this a couple of weeks ago. So you all listening, all of you, you know something I don't yet know, which is how the Supreme Court came down on marriage equality. That decision is due imminently as I record this introduction. Um, It was due weeks ago as you listen. Nancy Hartunian, the producer of the Savage Lovecast, is away on vacation She gets to have vacations too. So we had to bank a couple of shows and talk about shitty timing for having a topical top of the Savage Lovecast and banking a show because it's pride and here comes the Supreme Court decision and how did pride go and how did the Supreme Court – what decision did they give us on marriage and how did the Republican fucking shitty candidates react and how did – the Democratic candidates react. Hopefully the Democratic candidates and liberals and progressives and people at Pride Parades were all celebrating. And the Rick Santorums, Mike Huckabees, Jeb Bush's, Rand Paul's, Marco Rubio's, Ted Cruz's, Donald Trump's of the world were mourning. We're being very sad because traditional marriage is now over in the United States. Actually not. You can still get traditionally married in places where same-sex couples can legally wed, like all of Canada and all of Mexico. Mexico, their Supreme Court, this week, as I speak, legalized same-sex marriage all across Mexico. So we are the missing piece of North America now. America, land of the free, home of the brave, always last. Always last to get there. Think about, you know, we're coming up on an election. We're going to have a chance to vote on... Perhaps our first female president, unless Bernie Sanders, who's surging in New Hampshire, steals the nomination away. We will be voting for Hillary. I will be voting for Hillary if she gets the nomination. I'll be voting for Bernie if he gets the nomination. But I'll be voting for Hillary. And if she wins, you know what's going to happen. The entire country is going to fold in half to give itself a blowjob about how awesome this is that we elected our first female president. Doesn't that just say wonderful things about where we are now on gender equality and what a terrific nation we are? And I deputize all of you wherever you are when that happens to stand up on a chair and say, Golda Meir, Benazir Bhutto, (laughs) Margaret Thatcher, Angela Merkel. Like Other countries have had female heads of states. Fucking Pakistan had a female head of state in the 80s. Fucking Pakistan. We are laggards when it comes to electing women to high office. And we are laggards when it comes to marriage equality in North America. Canada and Mexico both beat us there to it. But hopefully we got it. And yay for us. Yay for equality. Yay for traditional marriage. We have to reject this Republican frame that you are for the rights of same-sex couples to marry or you are for traditional opposite-sex marriage. You can be for both. That is the trick. I'm for both. I support my heterosexual siblings' heterosexual marriages, their traditional opposite-sex marriages. I support my neighbors and their opposite-sex marriages. I support Nancy Hartoon. Well, no, actually Nancy Hartoonian's opposite-sex marriage I have issues with, which we will not unpack on the show. I support them. 
You can do both. Republicans who are sad now if we have marriage equality, you can do both. And liberals and progressives and Democrats who are sad now if we don't have it, we have to keep making the argument that you can have both. You know something I don't know. It's very hard for me to talk about this in a speculative fashion. There's one thing I can talk about in a definitive fashion though. The makeup of the United States Supreme Court, the nine motherfuckers who sit in that courtroom matters. It matters. We would not have seen the Voting Rights Act disemboweled if Al Gore was president and had been appointing people to the Supreme Court instead of George W. Bush. We would not have seen Citizens United if there were more sane people, fewer Robertses and Alitos and Scalias and Thomases on the Supreme Court and more Sotomayors and Kagans and Stevens on the Supreme Court. So whatever you think of whoever the Democratic nominee winds up being, Bernie or Hillary, it matters having a Democrat in the White House to appoint the new members of the United States Supreme Court. There will probably be two members of the court retiring in the next four years. Ginsburg might be one of them. God bless Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but she is not immortal. And we need a Democrat in the White House appointing her replacement. So as a condition of continuing to listen to my podcast, you will register to vote and you will vote and you will vote the way I tell you to. That's part of our deal. Just getting conservatives out there who listen and then whine and complain whenever I say something like this. You are allowed to keep listening too, but I'm allowed to hector you about who I'd rather you were voting for than Jeb exclamation point. But we Democrats who are listening, liberals, progressives, even radicals, yes, whoever the Democratic nominee, unless it's Bernie, whoever it is, isn't perfect. But better than the alternative is still better than the alternative. And if for no other reason to register to vote and vote for the Dem next November, the Supreme Court, because the Constitution of the Supreme Court, the makeup of the court, it fucking matters. As you saw when the decision on marriage equality came down after we recorded this show. I salute you, people of the future. I hope you're celebrating wherever you are and your calls after this. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is supported by Sundance Now Doc Club, the new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries. Discover unforgettable films like Orgasm Inc. and How to Survive a Plague. To get a free 30-day trial, go to docclub.com slash savage. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash savage. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Bull and Branch, luxury, affordable, fair trade certified sheets. Get 50 bucks off a set of sheets plus free shipping by going to bullandbranch.com and entering Savage. Hi, Dan. Uh, I am a 23-year-old lesbian, and I am just calling because recently my girlfriend, I have a living girlfriend, and she hasn't really wanted to have sex. Uh, about a month ago, um, I had been drinking too much, and I had alcohol poisoning. And since that point, she said that she just didn't feel like having sex after that. And I'm just wondering if that's something that I should wait out. I since quit drinking and I feel like I've done a lot on my part um, to try to repair that. But I, I'm just wondering if you think that there's something more there or if you think, that, you know, 
should I wait it out or should, do you think that we should break up? Is this, you know, a sign of something bigger? Um, I'm just kind of wondering how best to have that conversation because every time I have tried to have a conversation um, that I feel like I want to have sex, you know, and she doesn't, I I feel like I get shut down and um, I think that she feels like I'm criticizing her, um, which I'm really not trying to do. Also, we had agreed previously um, to be in an open relationship and we had kind of started dating other people. And then um, she said recently that she no longer felt comfortable with that. So she felt like we had to kind of repair things. So I, I'm just kind of wondering what your opinion is. Do you think that we should break up or I should hold out? Or how do you think is the best way to approach that conversation? Okay, so you know what I'm going to tell you to do, right? No. <laughs> oh, for Christ's sake, what am I going to tell you? Guess, guess. Um, well, I guess I should catch you up that my girlfriend and I already broke up, so I oh, okay. don't know well, who your in- advice. I'm so glad. Who initiated the breakup? Who, who ended it? Kind of me, but also sort of both. I think that it was, but now I'm feeling all conflicted, like I made the wrong decision and I don't know. <laughs> how, how long How long were you two together? Two years. Two years. Okay, that's a long time. And in that time, you stopped having sex. You had to quit drinking because you got way too drunk one night. Alcohol poisoning, that's seriously a, a problem. And I agree with your girlfriend there that, that that was a problem. And I think you agree too, right? Yeah. And But it sounds like – this sounds like a case where somebody was – your girlfriend was – picked an event as an excuse to stop fucking you. And then made it your fault. Right? Like this happened. So I'm not going to fuck you anymore. And I'm not going to, I don't want to talk about it. And when you try to talk to me about it, I'm going to blow up or be angry. And for me, that, yeah. that always just looks like somebody who doesn't want to fuck you anymore, but needs, wants to pin it on you, wants to blame you for the fact that they're not fucking you. When the real reason they're not fucking you is they just don't want to fuck you. But they, they, they gin up some fucking causes belli where they can go, I would totally be fucking you except for that thing that you did or that thing that happened. And now I don't want to fuck you. And I would, if that hadn't happened, I'd be totally fucking you. So your fault that I'm not fucking you. Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to, yeah. I don't think that like she specifically worded it that way. It was just, I mean, after that happened, she was like, yeah, I need some time. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And then of, of course, probably since we weren't having sex, we just started fighting all the fucking time. So then we broke up and now we live together and, <laughs> oh, and how's so, that going? Um, it's fine now, actually, since we broke up, we stopped arguing with each other. So, <laughs> um, that, that's sometimes magic. I, I've had this, I've seen this happen before where two people, when they're officially together, it's contentious. It's horrible. They're, they're trying to control each other because they feel subconsciously because I am the girlfriend. I have rights. I have a right to control. You have a right to dictate your behavior. And when you fall short or you piss me off, I, I have a right to blow up. And then they break up and they're roommates and they stop policing each other. They stop treating each other like their property that they have certain right to control and their relationship becomes breezy, easy and fun again. I feel like that is totally what happened. And but, but here's the thing. Unless you guys can articulate that this was the process, that the problem when we were together was this bullshit attitude that we have to root out, that you know we controlled and owned each other and we were answerable to each other in this particular bullshitty high-conflict way, 
unless we can identify that as a dynamic that we're not going to recreate, we can't get back together. Because this thing that right. is tempting us to get back together now, because we're in this easy breezy place where we're not trying to control each other. The minute we say we're girlfriends again, if we go back to trying to control each other, we've recreated the circumstances that led to the breakup. You know, we recreated the dynamic that convinced yeah. us we couldn't be together. So we can get back together, but no more controlling crazy, you're my girlfriend, I get to dictate to you, and vice versa. Bullshit. We're both autonomous, equal individuals who are together because we enjoy each other. And we're going to love and support each other. And, you know, there'll be conflict. And, you know, you'll do things that annoy me. I'll do things that annoy you. But this, like, 24-7, you know, eye-in-the-sky motor shit about controlling each other, that's got to stop. Yeah, that's really good advice. It's something that I sort of realized, like, we we drove back from Portland together, and um, I don't know. I, I was like, oh, that thing that you just said that would normally annoy me, I'm just going to let it go, which I don't know why I couldn't do that before. <laughs> you know you could, you know why you couldn't do that before? Because you thought, I have to stamp out this annoying thing because she is my life partner. And if I don't stamp out this annoying thing, it will annoy me every day forever, right? Yeah. And this, yeah. <laughs> the skill you have to develop in a long-term relationship is your partner sometimes does annoying things and you pretend that it didn't happen. You ignore it. You pay the fucking price of admission, which is sometimes you just roll your eyes and keep your fucking mouth shut. And if it's a minor thing, like if your partner punches you in the face, you don't ignore that, right? If your partner is rude or inconsiderate or not working or using you or is emotionally abusive, all those, you don't ignore those things. Those aren't prices of admission that anyone should pay. But your partner has some little quirk or tick or habit that annoys you. You can learn to ignore that. Terry, the example I always use, cannot make himself food without leaving everything involved, laying on it all over the counter. I used to yell at him, put the mayonnaise away, put the ham away, put the mustard away, put the bread away. And then one day I just put it all away myself. And that was so much easier. Right? Yeah. And so the price of admission I pay to be with Terry is I clean up after him when he touches anything because he can't put anything away. And it's worth it. Like it's totally worth it. And so if your partner has this annoying tick in a car, like she plays a certain kind of shitty music you hate – you can ignore it. You can make that the price of admission you pay. But the mistake people make as you just, you know, what you just said is you can't let it go. Sometimes people get this idea in their head that now that we're together, this thing that if we were just friends or we weren't together, I would just let go. I can't let it go. I have to stamp it out. I have to exterminate it. And it becomes this, yeah. con this conflict generator. And the, I'm That's so interesting. I never, I never uh, looked at it that way. I guess I should just tell you the thing that really annoys me. Is she would say, um, "Sorry, it's Wendy again." She would always be like, "You know, I'm not trying to attack you." I'm like, what? I didn't even. I wasn't even mad. You didn't say anything. I don't understand what. <laughs> well, that is that is such a lesbian uh, form of attack. I have to say that, that is what lesbians <laughs> say right before they punch you, <laughs> verbally punch yeah. you. Uh, so, I don't know why she would say that either, but. What else? But, you know, I think regardless, you know, letting it go and I think hopefully just let some time pass and then I don't know if we did decide to get back together, things would hopefully then be different. I don't know. It would be wonderful <laughs> if people could be as uncontrolling with their partners as they are with their friends. Like nobody yeah. in a friendship tries to fix everything about their friend that annoys them. They just like, yeah, my friend has some annoying qualities and I try not to focus on them and focus on what I really like about my friend. And when my friend's being super annoying, I, you know, I go away or I, you know, I take a time out or I don't hang out with them at those times, you know, and you can take the same tack with a partner, a partner or with a lover, with a spouse. Right. 
yeah, there are things my, by my spouse that annoy me and I don't fucking spend all my time working on those things or thinking about those things. And when my partner's being particularly shitty, I go read a book or I say, hey, let's watch television so we don't have to talk to each other for two hours. <laughs> let's go to the movies and sit silently beside each other. And then we don't have to talk about this shit, the conflicts. We don't have to focus on it. We can focus together on something else. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> don't, get back, don't get back together with this girl unless you can have this conversation with her and unpack this dynamic and diffuse it. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. Thanks so much for calling. Hi, Dan. I'm the text heavy at risk youth. I'm a, a young twenties gay man from Western Canada. And I've had a weird experience recently that I don't know who else to ask about. I, I was at a party and came home and lady man, I was browsing grinder and someone who had a, a bi discreet profile wrote me and said, Hey, are you interested in doing something for money? And I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, not that much, just maybe jerk me off a little bit. We can meet up and I'll give you 200 bucks. And I was like, of course, that sounds great. So I met up with him and we drove to a park. I got out of the car. It was dark. I took my shirt off. He took his shirt off. He jerked himself off and we were done. He handed me $200 crash and then we over. And then he drove me home and he was super nice and there was nothing weird and uncomfortable and dangerous about it. But it occurred to me that it could have been really dangerous and scary and I don't know that I'm prepared or that I was prepared for what could have happened there. And I'm wondering if there are any ground rules going into a situation like this. I like don't necessarily want to make a profession of this, but it's something that's going to happen again probably because that was great money and he was nice and it was kind of fun and exciting. Um, yeah. So what, what do I do? Is there anything that I feel like obviously discretion is key for him. So I know his name, but I can't like give all the information to someone just in case. Uh, yeah. So are there any ground rules for my safety ground rules for how to treat this relationship? Is there like a finite point at which I have to start, I don't know, treating more like a business unless like, or more like, a, more like an ongoing friendship? Or I believe you may be overthinking this. doesn't sound like you want to go into sex work professionally. There's tons of great writing out there, uh, some books out there. If you Google around, you'll find them about how to take up sex work professionally. But that's not what you're asking about. You're asking about just this one guy who offered you 200 bucks to go jack off with him and he seemed perfectly nice and perfectly respectful and you jacked off with him and he paid you the 200 bucks and you might want to go jack off with him again sometime for the money and for the thrill and for the walk on the wild side. And it doesn't sound like a, a situation or a circumstance with a lot of built-in risks. You had a good feeling about this guy. You hooked up with him. If money hadn't changed hands, you probably wouldn't feel that much differently about it and you would apply the same kind of common sense to those interactions with someone you don't know very well that you should apply in this case. If he, if he gives you a bad feeling, don't keep seeing him. Trust your gut. If he does something crazy or weird, leave. You can leave at any time. And you can confide in someone about who you're with and where you're going if you have any concerns. It's not a violation of his privacy for you to let a friend know that you're hanging out with this guy, you don't know him very well. If you disappear, not that you're going to disappear, but if you disappear – to have left that phone number and name, even if it's just a first name, with a friend, not a violation of his privacy, not some sort of violation of the implicit terms that money changing hand obligates you to in any way. You're allowed to advocate for your own safety in that moment. That can include leaving his name and number with a buddy. 
And just a theory from left field, I have heard from people in the past and I've known people, actually personally known people, who got off on paying for it. They even paid people that they really didn't need to pay for it. For it, People who wanted to sleep with them anyway, they paid them because they were aroused by the whole like John sex worker thing, the whole prostitute John thing kind of turned their crank and it was their fetish. It was their role play thing with some actual real money changing hands. That could very well be the case for him. You were already talking to him before he made this offer. So I assume you were attracted to him on some level, but this is kind of what turns him on. This is his kink. You're being GGG by taking the do re mi. Enjoy. Don't overthink it. Use the same common sense safety approach you would use with anybody else that you were hooking up with that you didn't know well. We spend about a third of our lives in bed, sleeping, rolling around in, rolling around on top of sheets. So you should have the best sheets available, right? Because you spend so much time in between the sheets. And there's a brand new company out there selling sheets called Bull and Branch. And they're impressive. Their sheets are so soft and comfortable. They sent me some recently and we are working them over pretty good. Also, they seem to be trying really hard to be a genuinely responsible company. They use 100% organic cotton. They're the first brand of bedding to be certified fair trade. This means their workers are treated well. They wanted me to tell you that three U.S. presidents have slept on bowl and branch. They didn't say which ones, so you're going to have to use your imagination if you dare. Other celebrities, too, have slept on these sheets besides, you know, me. And they have made luxury bedding affordable. Typically, when you buy bedding, you're paying an 800% markup at the store. And unless you're paying $500 to $1,000 for a set, the quality isn't anywhere close to what they're selling for a couple hundred bucks. They're so confident that you'll love Bolin Branch, you can try their sheets risk-free for 30 nights. And if you order right now, they will give you 50 bucks off a set of sheets plus free shipping. Just go to B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H dot com and use the promo code SAVAGE. That's right. Get 50 bucks off a set of sheets by going right now to BolinBranch.com and using the promo code SAVAGE. Hi, Dan. I'm a 33-year-old straight man living in the Northwest. I'm in a long-term relationship of nearly seven years with a woman, also 33. We have a great connection in many ways, but I have some questions about our deeper compatibility. Notably, I've always had a desire to fuck other women, and she's very clear she does not want an open relationship. We began dating at a time when my, I was just coming into my own sexual confidence, so I never really got to play the field as an adult man. On moving to the Northwest from the East Coast, I found that long-term monogamous couples are a very rare breed, at least in positive communities. Two years ago, I mentioned the particular woman that I was attracted to. I also said that I needed for us to be able to communicate our desires more freely, since I didn't have any understanding of what turned her on. Turns out she was attracted to the same woman and has always been secretly turned on by girls. This led to a series of conversations about exploring a threesome. With this new honesty, I felt totally turned on and in love with her and that we could create a monogamish relationship that worked for both of us. In the two years since, the conversation has advanced, but the farthest we've gotten is both kissing a girl at a party. It was incredibly hot, blew my mind a bit, and made me see my lady in a whole new light. There have been other moments of flirtation, also very hot. However, we've yet to have a three-way. She's adamant that she only feels turned on in certain moments, which are often fleeting, and doesn't want to be perceived as creepy by pursuing. If I bring up whether she finds someone attractive, say in the middle of a party, it's usually an immediate buzzkill for her. I've initiated going to a few sex parties, but none of them have been very sexy experiences, and we often end up fighting that night. I feel trapped, 
On the one hand, I'm optimistic that sharing some sexual adventure would bring us much closer together. On the other, it's taking a very long time, and I don't feel I can push the issue. I also can't say whether, with certainty whether a shared threesome experience would extinguish my desire to have my own sexual experience with another woman. We've come to a point where we've started to ask whether we should break up. For her, an open relationship is a deal breaker. For me to know if I can commit to marriage, I need more adventures with or without her involved. She said that if we break up, she'd pretty much leave the city immediately, and it's tough to, for me to imagine not having her in my life, at least as a friend. I know that you're a big advocate of sexual adventure in monogamous relationships. Do you believe that can make a significant difference in a couple's dynamic? Should I just stop being impatient and allow her to initiate a three-way in one of those moments that feels right to see what effect that might have in our relationship? Or am I just dragging out a relationship with a great person that I'm ultimately not compatible with? I'm really at a loss. So what you guys are doing here is kind of playing sexual relationship, monogamy, non-monogamy, price of admission, chicken. And who's going to jump first? And you need to embrace the actual dynamic. Somebody's going to lose. Somebody's going to have to give. Somebody's going to have to look at the sort of mutually exclusive ultimatums that you have both thrown on the table and decide whether they're in or out. And she is telling you that she is not up for open relationships. She's giving you just enough sort of you know, going out to these sex parties that clearly make her unhappy – hence the fighting afterwards, just enough contemplation of threesomes to keep you in her life, right? To keep you living in hope. And she hopes to run out the clock for the next 50 years, probably. And then, ah, no threesome, we're dead. And you're giving her, you're saying that your price of admission is open relationship. So these are mutually exclusive positions. And one of you is going to have to shit or get off the other's face. It's time. So you've invested a lot of time and energy and sturm and drang and bullshit in this relationship and good for you. You both like stuck it out to see if you could come to terms, to see if you could push yourselves closer together and somebody's got to call the question. So you have to go to her and say to move forward in this relationship, to actually commit, I need to be in an open relationship. I need to have the person that I love, that I'm committed to, that I will be loyal to but I also need to have my sexual freedom too. And if that's not what you want, then you don't want me. And she needs to say to you, you know, what I want going forward is an exclusive sexual commitment. I want monogamy. I don't want three ways and I don't want to be with somebody who's with other people. Are you willing to give me what I want? And then one of you needs to make up your fucking minds about who's going to compromise. Are you going to settle or is she going to settle? And if neither of you are willing to settle, it is time to end what has become at this stage kind of a farce. You guys are just – Drawing out the inevitable confrontation and the inevitable paying of the price of admission by one or the other of you. One of you is going to have to pay that price. Who is it going to be? Time to ask. This episode of the Savage Lovecast is brought to you by Sundance Now Doc Club, the new streaming service for everyone who loves documentaries. If you're like me and you like real stories, real people in extraordinary situations, or you love to learn about the world around you, you will love Sundance Now Doc Club. Doc Club brings the human voice back to movie recommendations. The documentary films are handpicked by expert programmers with unique perspectives or by cultural icons like Ira Glass or Susan Sarandon. Doc Club's library of documentaries includes incredible stories of all types, including crime, history, politics, music, and sex. And as a Sundance Now Doc Club member, you also get exclusive benefits like free movie tickets, access to film festivals, award shows, and more. 
one film I recommend checking out, How to Survive a Plague, the Academy Award-nominated film about ACT UP and TAG, the treatment action group. ACT UP, of course, was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, founded by Larry Kramer. This film is about the men and women involved in ACT UP and TAG who changed the way medicine in this country works and saved countless lives. It really is a heartbreaking and very moving film about the darkest days of the HIV AIDS epidemic and the people who stepped up, the people who fought back and changed the world. And it is, it is shattering. And it also is a really important film that people need to see because it shows what a community can do when it comes together, even under terrible stress and terrible duress and fights back, fights for itself. When people fight for their lives, the changes they can make, when they put themselves, put their bodies on the line, like Peter Staley, Larry Kramer, and the rest of the men and women featured in this documentary did. You got to see it. How to Survive a Plague, Academy Award nominated documentary, such an important film. You got to watch it. And if you're a member of Sundance Now Doc Club, you can watch it. And for our listeners, Sundance Now Doc Club is offering a free 30-day trial to give you a chance to try out their service. Get your free 30-day trial at docclub.com slash savage. That's D-O-C-C-L-U-B dot com slash savage. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is a 30-year-old female on the East Coast. I um, have been married for about two and a half years to a wonderful man, and we are expecting our first very wanted child. Uh, we had some fertility issues, and we have been through a lot in the past year and a half trying to get pregnant. Finally got pregnant, and we're both over the moon, super excited. I have no sex drive. <laughs> I'm halfway through my pregnancy, and I feel okay. I just don't feel sexy, and I don't want to do stuff. Um, we have, you know, we snuggle and, and cuddle and touch and kiss, and we're intimate with each other. And my husband is wonderful and keeps saying he doesn't care. He's fine. He's not worried about it. It'll come back whenever it comes back. But I am, like, really struggling with the fact that it's gone, and when will it come back? And I don't really know what to do. And I wondered if you could just tell me to get over it and just be patient and wait and see what happens or power through and start doing it and see if I feel sexy. I don't know, Dan. Please tell me. Joining me to help answer this question, the host of WNYC's parenting podcast, The Longest, Shortest Time, Hillary Frank. Hey there, Hillary. How are you? Hey, Dan. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I was on your show, and it's only fair that you should come on mine. And I figured this is the best question because this must come up constantly. This I'm pregnant, and I'm not horny, and what do I do about it? Should I do anything about it? And unlike some of the questions I've gotten in the past, her husband isn't pressuring her for sex, and yet she feels guilty. And her question is, when will it come back? So in your infinite experience, when does it come back? And is it the same time frame for everybody, or does she just need to let it happen? I mean, first, I would say, of course, you don't feel horny. Like some people report to me that they do in pregnancy, but most don't. And um, the first thing that's really, really great is that your husband um, is saying that he knows you'll get it back and that he doesn't mind waiting. And you need to trust him on that if he's telling you that. And it is different for everybody when they get it back. Um, and And I mean, I think what I would do is encourage your husband to tell you what he finds sexy about your new body because your body is changing. It's going to continue to change. And there are things about it that won't go back. And 
And, and it's really important for you to believe and understand that there are things about your body, your new body, um, that he is going to find sexy. And, and so if you can work with him on getting him to tell you what those things are with the understanding that it, that, that him telling you those things don't have to end in sex, I think that's mm-hmm. going to go a long way for your confidence. And then I would just say, be patient with yourself, like believe yourself that it will come back at some point, Um, but that you might not like the same things that you used to. You know, what you used to like might hurt or be uncomfortable or just might not turn you on. Um, And that can be super frustrating. But if you have a partner who's willing to go slow with you and work with you on figuring that out, it can actually be kind of exciting. Because you can find new stuff that works for you, new stuff that turns you on. It can push you off in a different direction that can be very fulfilling. Exactly. Exactly. And it takes work for both of you. It's it's like you're not going to know until you try things. And, and this is one of those instances uh, where somebody isn't taking yes for an answer. He's he's saying he's fine, that it's fine. He's being mm-hmm. patient, understanding. He's not pressuring her. And yet she's pressuring herself and feeling guilty. She's rushing into the, the, the no pressure void that he's created. There's no pressure in this room, so I'm going to put pressure on myself. And she needs to dial that back. She needs to take I'm fine from the husband for an answer here and not do to herself what so many other husbands have done to their pregnant wives and pressure herself or or guilt trip herself about this thing. That is not a problem. It is literally there's no problem here. Don't make it into a problem. That's right. You're not horny. He's not pressuring you. Enjoy each other. Be intimate. Hold each other. Talk. Put down, you know, markers for sex you're going to have in the future, post-pregnancy, post-infancy. You know, it could be a while after the birth before you kick back into gear. And you're going to have to give yourself time and then ramp back up slowly. But stop pressuring yourself. The, the thing that I think also every pregnant woman should know is that um, there's this thing out there called pelvic floor physical therapy. And um, in the event that things hurt afterwards, go do that because it will help you and it'll, it'll change your sex life. What is it? Can you tell us what it is? Yeah. Yeah. It's so it's basically, it's physical therapy for your pelvic floor for, and it that's external and internal. And so you basically like they, they help kind of restructure you so that your bones are in alignment and your muscles are in alignment. And there's all, there are so many things that can get out of whack when you have a baby come out either vaginally or in a C-section. And, um, and it, it, that comes from carrying a baby and from giving birth. And, uh, and, and so, so f- pelvic floor physical therapy can help put things back where they should be and, and help it so that you don't hurt. Do, do most insurance policies cover pelvic floor physical therapy or is that something that you have to fight for? Yeah. I mean, it's both. Um, it depends. And, a lot of them, it's out of network, but there's like a, a deductible. This is something that you'd think Hobby Lobby would be happy to pay for. Hobby Lobby, <laughs> of course, doesn't want to pay for your birth control because they want there to be as many babies as possible. So they should be excited to pay for your pelvic floor physical therapy after you've had that baby that Hobby Lobby wants you to have. That's so hopefully right. Let's if you're hope. li- listening to, and you're at Hobby Lobby, if you're one of the oppressed female employees at Hobby Lobby, maybe there's some silver lining in the no birth control dark cloud. When you hear about all the things that can go wrong during pregnancy, you think you, know, you want to grab somebody on the street who's arguing for intelligent design and say, this is not an intelligent design, the way having a baby puts so much stress on, uh, on a woman's body. Even if everything works perfectly and goes the way it should, 
the 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 zap it can put on a woman's body is just so major and extreme that how could an intelligent designer be behind this? Yeah. Is it worth it? Are children worth it? Should we just go extinct at this point? What the fuck? <laughs> well, I think I think it's worth it if you know that you can get it fixed. And <laughs> you, you can. And you can. Oh, hi, Dan. I'm a 32-year-old straight woman, and my husband and I have been married for about a year and a half. And about a year ago, after we'd been married for about eight months, I had a, a premature birth, and our daughter was born at five months. And so needless to say, the past year or so has been really difficult dealing with that and um, all the stuff that goes along with that. But in the past couple months, you know, we've gotten to the point where we're ready to try and have another child. And, you know, we've been trying for several months now. And, you know, just trying to have a baby in general is a stressful kind of thing because, you know, we've always had a just a wonderful, wonderful sex life and are really attracted to each other and really into it. But, you know, all of a sudden when you have to do something, it's just kind of like a lot more difficult to do. And then, you know, you add this layer of stuff on top of it with having lost our daughter. And then, you know, all of a sudden it's not just an obligation, but it's also scary and, you know, just all these other things as well. So, um, in any case, we're trying to find ways to keep it fun or, you know, it's just at this point, it's like, oh, okay, so we have to do it for these, you know, seven days or five days or whatever. And it's just really hard to get into it. You know, we try lingerie and, you know, doing it in different places and all these things to try and mix it up and try and make it more fun. But it's just a really hard thing to have sex and want to do it and you know instead of just like a chore that we kind of both dread and we talk about it a lot both of us anyways I was just wondering if you had any advice on different stuff that we could try or you know anything to kind of make this process easier and bring it back to the fun it seems to me and, and correct me if I'm wrong and I think you're more of an expert in this area by far than I am that she should adjust her expectations that the kind of sex that she was having five years ago, the getting to know you sex with her partner and now her husband, the sort of fun, adventurous sex for pleasure is not the kind of sex she's having right now. And she should stop measuring the sex she's having right now for at a different time in her life and for a different reason against the yardstick of the sex she was having when they first met. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And that's, that's sort of a universal long-term relationship thing. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think also, there's a devastating loss here. And and I feel like the most important thing you can do in a situation like this is to not pretend like it, like it didn't happen, you know, to deal with the loss and to, to talk about it. It sounds like she has, um, you know, see a grief counselor if you want to or need to. Um, but also like, remember that you're on the same team, you and your partner on, mm -hmm. are on the same team. Like these kind of situations have the potential to drive you apart or to make you closer to a person. And there's there's like there's nothing sexier than someone who really gets you. Um and and I would encourage them to 
use that when they're when they're being intimate. And I, I don't mean just like when you're getting ready to have perfectly timed sex, you know, I'm talking about like being close and like doing things together that you've never done before, like uh, really simple stuff, like walk around a part of your city together that you've never been in or eat a kind of food you've never tried or listen to a kind of music you've never heard. Have new experiences together that aren't all about mourning the loss of the other baby or trying to have a new baby. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like that, like it's all related and it, it's all related to feeling intimate with somebody. Um, and also I think like, just remember you don't, you don't have a kid yet and uh, use that to your advantage. You, you know, you can, you can do it whenever you want. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you need to do it on certain days and that, that sort of takes some of the fun out of it. Um, but you could do it in the morning or at night, or you could sneak out at lunch for a quickie if that's something you could do. But like, you can be playful with each other in a way that isn't as possible when you have kids. And it, let it be a different kind of sex. And there's yeah. sex that I think people have in the wake of grief and loss and tragedy that is more about, I, I think, reclaiming yourself, more about reclaiming life in this affirming way, but it can be very different, less sort of casually fun and celebratory and less taking life for granted, more like reasserting that life is to be lived. And, you know, I'm not comparing the loss and there's nothing more devastating than the loss of a child, but the, the, and I hate to drag my own dick into it, but the sex I had in the wake of my mother's death was very different than the sex Terry and I were having in the months before. You know what I mean? It was just very, mm-hmm. it was very sad. It was, but very loving and tender, but we had to let it be different. And I guess, you know, from my own personal experience with loss, not equating the losses, I would just tell the caller to go ahead and be sad and have sex that you can have mm-hmm. sex from a place of, of grief and loss where you're rewiring yourself, reestablishing those connections and looking to the future from this point right now of grief and loss. And that's okay to experience sex differently in the wake of that kind of loss to let it mean something else. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I haven't lost um, a pregnancy, but I had a really, really, I had a really, really rough um, childbirth injury and um, it really, impacted my sex life. And I think um, like there was grief and loss around that. And again, not to equate them, but I I think that um, I wish someone had told me, don't just pretend like it didn't happen. Just, but, but like work, work on it together, work through it together. And like you said, like, it's okay to be sad. And, um, Put away the fucking lingerie. Stop like trying to yeah. play up a kind of performative, uh, up with people, happy, you know, consequence free life is, you know, a cabaret kind of fucking sex right now. That's not where you are. And don't mm-hmm. pretend to be there. Don't hustle yourself to that place because you're just going to feel alien in that place. It's not where you are. You'll get back there in time. But for right now, like put away the fucking lingerie and lay together and stop. Stop wanting it to be what it was and let it be where it is and then grow from there. And you'll get back to that place most likely. Most people do. But right now, have sad sex. Sad sex is a thing. Yeah, and use it as a way to use it as a way to connect rather than a way to produce a baby. Right. E- even though that's the goal. 
and don't use it to deny. Yeah. And if you want to have a good cry during or after, go the right the fuck ahead. Yeah. Because then sex can be part of your healing process. And right now it sounds like she's using sex as kind of a denial mechanism or, or, or sometimes to, to block the grief instead of like flowing through it, which you just got to flow through. You got to fuck through it. Sometimes you got to fuck through the grief. Mm-hmm. Ah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hillary Frank. Thanks for having me on Dan. Big fan of your show. Find it on iTunes and WNYC's parenting podcast, the longest, shortest time. You also have Facebook pages for moms and dads. Anything else you want people out there in my audience to know about your show? Yeah, we have an app now um, where you can answer our questions every other week and we put our favorite answers on the show. You can find it on the iTunes store. Thank you so much, Hillary. It was great having you. Thanks, Dan. Hello, I am a 29-year-old straight female living in the Pacific Northwest. And I have a question regarding my propensity to fall for people, for men, who have destructive addictions, are emotionally troubled, are are recovering from childhood wounds. They also tend to be in poor working order and are either unwilling or incapable of meeting my needs. And I'm aware of facilitating men's healing and growing process as a way to connect with them more profoundly. Um, So I'm wondering how I can experience the deep connection that comes with helping a romantic partner in his time of darkness without having to date damaged men. So basically what you're saying is that you really want to be a fireman, you really want to save people from fires, but you don't want to run into any more burning buildings. Well, you can't have that concept of yourself as a fireman who saves people from fires without being the person who runs into burning buildings. Translating now, you can't cling to this narcissistic identity that you've created for yourself as the healer of damaged men without having to date damaged men. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Your pussy is not Lourdes. You are not going to pour the healing waters out of your vaginal canal over some fucked up, emotionally troubled, destructively addicted, wounded from childhood guy and heal him. You have got to take some responsibility for what your concept of yourself, the havoc it is wreaking in your life. You have this idea that you are magic and that your pussy is lords, and you can take these guys and you can fix them and you can get really close by connecting with them so profoundly when you help them through their time of darkness. Here's the, here's the thing. Darkness and damage – comes for us all in the end. We are all going to die. Shitty stuff is going to happen to all of us. You don't have to go find guys who are in the throes of addiction or emotionally troubled or still working through their childhood wounds to be there for a guy in his time of darkness. You can find a decent, nice guy who's in good working order Right? Not perfectly healthy. Nobody's perfectly healthy. I'm not saying that you shouldn't date somebody with a history of mental illness. I'm not saying you shouldn't date somebody who's got damage that they've struggled with and overcome. But you should find somebody in good working order and date them and trust in fate. Trust that fate will deliver you to those moments when you will be able 
to help them through their time of darkness, right? And your emotional connection, which is already present, perhaps will be deepened by that crisis or strained by it or tested by it. But you need to fucking relax, date decent, healthy-ish, like we all want to be healthy-ish guys who are in good working order, and stop thinking of yourself as Florence Nightingale, Mother Teresa, Magic Pussy Lord's lady who's going to save all the broken men. Or embrace that identity. You are the savior of broken men, but then you're the fireman who has to run into the burning buildings and you don't get to bitch about the burning building you're standing in the middle of if being a fireman is really important to you. If being the rescuer, the, the repairer of damaged men is really important to you, stop bitching about dating damaged men. If you don't want to date damaged men, you need to take that self-concept, take that idea of yourself as the savior of damaged men out behind the barn and shoot it and put it away. Kill it. Dead. And that is my advice for you. Hey, I was just listening to the most recent podcast and the couple who was talking about the weird couch surfing experience. I just wanted to say that as a woman who couch surfs all alone, all over the world, I really rely on people like that who have had weird experiences <laughs> to say something and write honest reviews. I think the idea behind couch surfing is amazing and I overall love participating. If someone had had experienced that, it would mean a lot to me as a surfer and especially as somebody who's surfing alone and a woman who's surfing alone, to know that before I got myself into any uncomfortable situations. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to comment on episode 452, The Woman Who Enjoys Being a Misbehaved Wife. When I heard her call, I thought she was acting like what they call in the BDSM world a brat, which is a bottom who enjoys challenging their top. She should maybe look into role-playing the uppity-bottom role with her husband, and it might be a safer outlet for her bad behavior. Hey, Dan, I'm calling about the well-behaved wife. I understand this woman completely. Here's the thing that she's got to understand, though. It's the risk that's exciting. It's the danger. It's the maybe I might get caught. The grown-up response is when you take an action, you take on that risk. So, yeah, your husband might catch you, and, yeah, you might blow up your life, that's part of it. If she can accept that and quit trying to change other people, then she'll be fine. Go on and be a poorly behaved wife. But if you drive while you've had a little bit too much to drink, you're going to go to jail. That's just the way it works. If your husband catches you hanging out with this other guy, it might ruin your marriage. That's the way that works. So grow up. Keep being risky if you want to. I'm risky all the time, but I'm risky in ways that don't threaten to blow up my marriage. And we're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Hillary Frank on Twitter at LongestShortest. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and Nancy and the Tech Savvy At Risk Youth. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.